0: This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast. Ken and Robin talk about stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode
1: include Gen Con, stakes when death is out of genre, and saving an Old West notable.
0: Ken, do you know anything about kitties?
1: I might.
0: But do you know about magical kitties?
1: I know everything. Everything about magical kitties save the day. A new RPG for gamers of all ages. But you know, young ones in particular. A perfect intro to the hobby. You mean perfect? I do not. Like the title says, you're magical kitties. Every magical kitty has a human. Every human has a problem.
0: In Magical Kitty Save the Day, you use your magical powers to solve problems and
1: save the day. You all live in a hometown that's filled with foes like witches, aliens, and hyper-intelligent raccoons. They make
0: human problems worse, so the kitties go on adventures to stop them and help the humans.
1: The super simple but elegant rule system puts the emphasis on storytelling and puts the dice in the players' hands, not the GM's.
0: And it supports a setting and characters that players are familiar with and
1: love from the start. When you open the box for Magical Kitties Save the Day, sitting right on top is a copy of Magical Kitties and the Big Adventure.
0: A play graphic novel adventure.
1: Within moments of opening it, kiddos can create their magical kitty and go on an amazing adventure that also teaches them how to play the game.
0: Run Magical Kitty Save the Day for kids as young
1: as six years old. And for everyone else who loves kitties.
0: A great game for kids to start running on their own with plenty of tools and guidance for first-time GM.
1: If you've been looking for a way to introduce your friends and family to role-playing games,
0: Magical Kitty Save the Day is the perfect game to do it. Do you mean perfect? I also do not. Pick up your copy at atlas-games.com. You are cute. You are cunning. You are fierce. You are magical kitties, and it's time to save the day. So we are basking in the, uh, the middle days of August. Some have gone back to school. Others are about to. Others are just carrying on about their regular lives. But uh, Ken, in, in a normal year... We would both be back from Gen Con weary and muzzy headed with all sorts of news and, and views and having taken the temperature of the hobby gaming industry. But uh, this time that's true for half of us. Mm-hmm. Sadly, I had to cancel my trip this year. So Ken, for our travel advisory on Gen Con, which since I don't have Half of the things to say Uh is only going to take up half of this episode. I'm going to need you to fully brief me and therefore also our listeners on uh, exactly how it went. And this was the first Gen Con at its regular time in physical space since the onset of the pandemic. It was not, however, without touches of uh, COVID awareness because uh, the floor was still masked. the, The event area, people are still taking precautions. So we're not quite out of the epidemic woods, but we're crawling back to normal life and normal gaming life. So how, how did that manifest for those of you who were actually uh, lucky enough to be there?
1: I think that it's definitely on its way back. And I, given the amount of time everyone spent assuring each other that we were back, I'm, think that means we weren't back yet. <laughs> yes,
0: yes. we would not have to be saying that if it, if it was. If it
1: was actually normal Gen Con, we just would have been pouring alcohol down our mouths. We would not have been, you know, clapping each other on the back at it being back in August. That said, it felt much more like Gen Con than the one in September 2021, which I attended, felt like. The exhibit hall was, was mostly full, right? You, you had booths from one end to the other, a thing that we didn't have some of those booths were empty. People, you know, took their own temperature, had their own reasons for skipping out. So, it wasn't just that they, you know, gambled away the car money. A lot of people, I think, or a few people had, you know, last minute cold feet. So, there was a few more empties than there are normally, but still, by and large, it was a full floor. That said, the actual attendance seemed like it was a little bit off. Like I said, the floor of the exhibit hall seemed emptier, streets of Indianapolis just a tiny bit emptier. So, I'd Peg it, uh, apparently they were predicting about 60,000. I think maybe it was closer to 50,000. So 52,000, something like that might have been. So, you know, at its absolute peak, I believe that it was reaching closer to 70,000. So we were still a little bit off from the conventional attendance number that, you know, you would expect from a fully backed Gen Con. But it was enough people doing enough things that it was still impossible to get lunch on a Saturday without a reservation. Um, there was still, you know, people jamming up the aisles when you wanted to get somewhere. It just was not the sort of constant peristaltic mass of beloved gamers that it usually is on Saturday. It was, you know, in spots and in areas, it was uh, normal, but it wasn't quite there yet.
0: And so we're back to doing panels and uh, uh, talking to people about stuff. And there was a Cartus Live with me, recorded for a little bit, and we'll drop that probably sometime in September to uh, cover uh, when I'm away at the Robin and Valerie First International Film Festival. The, the dates have yet
1: to be determined. Well, it's hard to get a venue for an affair like that.
0: Yeah. Well, we got the venue, but the the two attendees haven't quite worked out their other commitments yet.
1: Oh, I get it. I, Valerie's pulling some prima donna stuff. Yes, she's exactly. like demanding a writer. Yeah.
0: So, uh, speaking of logistical difficulties, the other question I had was how many people were messed up by air travel being an utter clusterfudge at this
1: point? Well, Pelgrane Managing Director and co-owner Kat Tobin, as you know, was in fact very much messed up by United Airlines' inability to find a plane anywhere in the island of Ireland on Monday and Tuesday. So, she arrived very late Wednesday night, which is two days after her proposed arrival, yeah, that, that threw some wrenches into some things. It it Yes, it messed it up. So how many other people had similar horror stories? Other people had... They, I did not hear any, oh, that happened to me, but I heard some, oh, I heard that happened to X. So it was not isolated entirely in the Republic of Ireland and in the person of Cat Tobin, but I did not, you know, going around, and I got very little going around the floor done for a lot of reasons, but what I would talk to people... There, there was some mentions that they'd heard it from their own friend circle, but in terms of our own little tight knit social group, uh cat is the only case that I heard of. And of course, the individual Gen Con attendees, most of them drive to the show, right? So, so
0: the extra ten thousand people are possibly just right. Still the, yes, the,
1: yeah. the missing ten thousand people may still be sitting in an airport. They, they weren't there to tell you they'd had a right. problem. Yeah. They just <laughs> got
0: canceled. So I guess that this is I guess somewhat insider baseball. This is what convention attendees on the professional side, you know, talk about is, you know, how is your flight and, you know, how is booth set up? But as far as I guess the broad spectrum of our listeners are concerned, what they want to know is where is the gaming industry at? And so basically to catch people up, 2020 was actually a surprisingly great year for most people because people bought lots of game books. And then 2021 was down for basically, I, I think, a lot of that is just people didn't buy more books because they'd already bought plenty of them in 2020. And if you stick those two years together, there's a great year, a down year, you average them, you probably had a couple of normal years. But where where did you get the sense that uh, different, uh, particularly role-playing game companies, but adventure game companies in general, are doing as
1: we you know emerge slowly from the woods? Well, most of the game companies that I visited or talked to we're still on the sort of, yay, we're here, yay, we've got product here. But I think a lot of people were missing games that they'd expected to have here because of shipping and because of production, even in some cases. You know, no one puts up a sign that says, sorry, <laughs> this game isn't here.
0: Yeah, you don't leave a big spot on right. your table where your big release was supposed
1: to go. But um you could get the sense that everyone sort of, you know, Nodded understandingly when you said, Oh, Yellow King didn't make it or whatever. And then sometimes they would say, Well, here's a fun story. Such and such other game wasn't here. But it's, it was not a, you know, desperately dancing to cover because everyone also has a year and a half of, of backstock that no one had seen at a real Gen Con. So it never felt like, you know, a, a famine year in terms of the availabilities. Obviously, I don't keep up with the entire. A field of role playing the way that I used to, not least because it is much larger. <laughs> but I would go around and see people's tables, and they generally looked like they had you know most of the lines that I recognized were were older lines, but there was like three new books for it, and I I did not in any in every case go up and say were all these three new books twenty twenty one releases because I don't have that kind of time, and also no one wants to say that, so it was. It was harder to tell from the floor from the sort of interested punter perspective. But again, anecdotally friend of friend stuff, people were saying, yep, this did not ship. Yeah. We're wondering what's going to happen with this type questions. Right.
0: And that's something that even next year in 2023, it's still going to be weird because the printing backlog is still, I think going to be very much in force as we've talked about recently in our uh, segment about this is uh Trees take a while to grow. So we may still be in a situation where even, you know, next year people are sadly looking at their tables thinking of the book that is still scheduled to print 3 months from now or is uh, snarled in uh, customs because uh, one of the other unexpected things that is as more people try to source printing from outside the US that means they have to get those books through the, sorry Americans, exceedingly cumbersome U.S. Customs System. <laughs> and you're going to ha- have a lot of people talking about the way, you know, there was a reprint of Yellow King. It was stuck in customs. Hopefully it will be out of customs by 2023. So you said you didn't have a ton of time to go around and look at other people's uh, booths. But did you happen to catch any scuttlebutt on what the new cool games are?
1: Uh, not, not particularly the the vibe on you know new stuff people a lot of things that were th- things that people were looking forward to that wasn't out yet for one reason or another people are you know they were fascinated by you know the new vampire i saw a lot of people carrying stuff around but i'm hesitant to say that a game that was out in 2018 or 2017 is the new cool thing i think people are it's just we saw a, a, a an increase in Gamer depth, I guess I want to say. We this is another time you, you'll be thrilled to know that the sine wave has moved again, and once more we have people say, "Gumshoe system, what's that?" At the booth, uh, I feel like you know a lot of the people who are coming to Gen Con are coming, you know, either from the first time or just from D D again, and so we're getting. You know, people were saying, Vampire, a game where you play Vampires, I've never heard of such a thing. So there was a lot of, you know, energy around older releases. I'm not saying that no one had a new release that was, you know, wonderful and thrilling, but it was uh, a wonder and a thrill to people far away across the floor from me. The only cool new game to me, and and Luke Crane, uh, the designer, specified that it was, in, in fact, a strong seller, outselling, you know, Torchbearer and all the rest of the stuff at his booth was his new game, Miseries and Misfortunes, uh, in 1648 France. It's sort of a, a D&D hack, but of course, being Luke, it has now spawned some clever and baroque twists, and it is, of course, a, a game of immersing yourself in an immiserating century, and uh, that is the fun, uh, the the fun of struggling your way through a impossible uh, military and social cir- uh, circumstance um, and maintaining some... Uh, quality of heroism. And that's, uh, and, and that, and it's a fun game. There's like five supplements for it now or four supplements for it now. I, I cannot say that it was the cool new thing at the booth, but I can say that something as quirky and personal and, uh, unlikely on the surface of it as, uh, miseries and misfortunes found a niche and was selling strongly into that niche. So I'm sure that whatever was new for Age of Sigmar was doing great, but do I know what an Age of Sigmar is? Not at all. Well, if, if we hit
0: a Caesura in your knowledge, it's time for us to hit one as well in the show and pop on over to commercial land and then back for some more Gen Con talk. down foul sorcerers in a corrupt city. Clamber through underground ruins. Infiltrate the treasure vault of your decadent rival.
1: Backstab your way to power and influence. In Swords of the Serpentine. The gumshoe game of swords and sorcery, investigation and intrigue. By Kevin Kulp and Emily Dresner, And your mighty feud pals at Pelgrane Press. Strap on your blades for danger and forbidden knowledge. Tap into the corrupting source of sorcery. For knowledge and power. Sharpen your tongue for the rigors of social combat. Prophesy secrets from the past, present, or future. Seek glory,
0: justice, or the chance to live another day on the winding streets of Eversink. That's Swords of the Serpentine. Available now from Pelgrane Press.
1: Since I'm the one who came back from Gen Con crippled in body and throat. Therefore, it is apparently incumbent on me to talk throughout this entire segment. Uh, Well done, Robin. (laughs) We're returning with part two of our travel advisory about Gen Con. Normally, we would spend the whole episode talking about Gen Con, but as previously mentioned, Robin was not at Gen Con, so we only have half the material. And as you can perhaps tell from the last segment, Robin carried more than his weight. Uh, in this segment
0: yes just just imagining myself being there and imagining others be, being there and one thing that i imagined uh happened is that some awards were given out they were and the uh unofficial kickoff to gen con is always the diana jones awards which were back in the slippery noodle and uh, that is definitely a, a gaggle of uh, industry folk uh, gather for that H- how dense was the was the gaggle was it uh was it a thinner group of people there, or were the industry people all uh, fully
1: jammed together as as previous? I think it was a smaller crowd than usual, and I think that because I was late in arriving. I normally arrive... Are you saying you swanned in? I'm exactly the saying last, I swanned in. Moment? Normally, I arrive around 9.30 for a 9 o'clock party, which seems fair. This year, my St. Elmo's reservation was two hours later than it normally was, so I swanned in closer to 11.00 for a nine o'clock affair. And by the time I'd swanned in, they'd already given out the award and most of the crowd was gone. And I remember at previous Diana Jones Awards parties, the crowd remaining in force for longer than that. That by 11...
0: Like increased health consciousness has led to more people going back and having sensible
1: bedtime yeah who can say what's led to it but i don't like it i don't approve it i don't <laughs> think it should exist so the outside of the of the undisclosed location was still jammed people you know going out and then seeing people they liked and wanting to stick around but the inside was a desert it was uh it was empty by the time i got there so i think that they had a good crowd but it was a crowd that Apparently needed my presence to become a party, Robin. I'm afraid I've let the side down. So the fripperies aside, the award itself went to... Went to Agit George, most recently the impresario behind the uh, Dungeons & Dragons, I think it's a campaign frame, uh, Journeys Through the Radiant Citadel, which is apparently a solar punk D&D setting and adventure thing. He built his own team and uh, put it together. It is uh, perhaps notable that it is the first... All non white team of creators to make a D and D book. So that's a milestone. Ajit, of course, has been, uh, I think people mostly know him as a, as an activist for children's charities in India and with children's education and lots of good stuff over there. And I don't know that people are as aware of his creative presence in the industry. He's obviously been a, you know, a presence presence in the industry because he shows up and he got to conventions and he's a big uh, presence at big bad con and a lot of other uh, sort of story game type shows. He does a lot of mentoring and stuff. So he's been to this sort of behind the scenes presence. And then up he comes at, uh you know, D and D and, you know, bangs it out of the park with journeys to the radiant Citadel. So he won the award. It was actually a super strong, nominee list uh any one of them as far as i'm concerned would have been absolutely worthy uh, to receive it across rpgc which is a collective of southeast asian gamers it's sort of their newsletter their forum where they put together you know all the stuff it's their the forge basically and it's uh super productive it's a lot of their innovations have splashed up in america uh haunted west uh which i uh contributed to but is virtually all the actual work of our buddy chris spivey it's his mostly straight western with magic and uh, weird stuff attached to it it's not it's not as alternate a history as say deadlands it's a tiny alternate history but it's not super alternate and of course its uh job is to you know elevate the stories of the say one third of cowboys who are black that kind of thing and it's uh a big, massive uh, Western game. And you know I love big, massive Western games. I love even tiny Western games, quite frankly. And, of course, Chris did a great job with uh, Haunted West. And then Mothership, which is, as far as I'm concerned, one of the best micro games in the sense of it's a little, small, compact, more story game-sized. Although the mechanics, I think, are more trad to come out in the last decade. And it has an amazing visual a visual aspect to it. It's uh, a terrific a sort of science fiction-y, horror-y type game there's a a superb look to it and it's uh also would have been a worthy winner so we had a good strong list of diana jones uh candidates and uh agit was a a strong winner but i don't think he was there i think he was off doing good somewhere else he was off in india uh,
0: attending to his charity work now the thing about the diana jones awards is that uh, there's only one of them. They're very hard to get. It's a big deal. But there's been a new thing added to the DGAs, and uh, that is the uh, Emerging Designer Award. So tell us about that.
1: Yeah, the Emerging Designer Program is basically one for people who are newer to the industry. They haven't been around as long. And the attempt is by the Diana Jones Committee to look for who's going to be the person who would be winning the DGA in 15 years, and maybe giving them a little encouragement now, so they stick around for those fifteen years, right? Right,
0: and and an attempt to change the shape of the talent pool as well.
1: Right, uh, yeah. Also, I mean, it's 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 about you know recognition and and spotlighting uh, new designers, of which, as I can tell you, there are way more than any one person can look at, which is why it's a good idea to have a committee of people looking at them. And the 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 emerging designer this year was uh, Mama Toes, uh, A.K.A. Bianca Canosa. And uh, she is part of that Southeast Asian role-playing game design scene that I mentioned, uh, part of the uh, Across RBGC uh, Collective. And, you know, again, has produced a number of games. Arc, Doom, The Magus, other great titles. Check out Mama Toes on Itch. You know, hopefully, Gion Shim, of course, got it last year. First of many, one hopes. Lots and lots of emerging designers throughout the years. So, there are
0: many awards given out at Gen Con, but the uh, one, I think, on most people's uh, radar, the one that is most likely to uh, award something to uh, a game one is a fan of, because it's more sort of oriented to the people's choice element of that award, is, of course, the Annies. And can sometimes there are uh, trends that you notice at, at the Annies, like the year that Free League suddenly exploded onto the scene. They've been there ever since. Sometimes it's uh, time to celebrate a, a particular long-time publisher, perhaps one enjoying a resurgence. Was there an identifiable trend this
1: year at the Ennies? In terms of, it, it looked like uh, the Morkborg guys and uh, Sweden in general had a really good year. I don't think that there was a single, you know, absolute, you know, carry back a whole wadge uh, of, you know, uh, of Ennies of Dracula dossier style. We had a, a pretty good split between a bunch of different companies, but there was, you know, HP Lovecraft Historical so- Society is always nominated because their stuff is always great, and they do it for Call of Cthulhu. Uh, they won one. Shadows of Esterin won a couple. Uh, I think you remember when they sort of showed up on the on the scene all of a sudden. In good personal news for us, friend of the show Banana Chan won, I believe, the silver for best setting. Chaosium got uh, best supplement with Cults of Cthulhu. Magpie Games. Took a couple of silvers for uh, things for Root, the uh, role-playing game of the superb counterinsurgency by accident board game of, you know, tiny uh, woodland animals recreating South Vietnam in the 1950s. So, lots of stuff all over the place. Product of the year, not who I predicted. It turned out to be Thirsty Sword Lesbians from Evil Hat. So, like I say, the audience was sort of, I mean, it was 29,000 voters, apparently more voters than there have ever been in the history of the Ennies. So... It is maybe getting to the point where one dedicated fan base can't quite, you know, turn the corner for a million nominees. But we also had a broader spread of nominees, I think, from a broader spread of companies than we sometimes see.
0: Right. Well, it'd be great to get to a point where the ability to campaign for fan votes is swamped just by the sheer number of products and uh and voters and it becomes more of a uh sort of a nail biter there and i certainly hope that the sword lesbians got to the bar afterwards and, and quenched their thirst
1: yes you'd hate the, if they were if they were still thirsty that would be the worst
0: right so finally can uh, were there any food discoveries
1: well robin a discovery can be both good and bad oh no let's start on an up note robin there is a food truck called naughty lobster and it had lobster rolls. And weirdly enough, uh, when your entree is $23, the lines are shorter at that food truck, which is why I was in line. And they served me something called an Alaska lobster roll, which was the lobster roll, your standard lobster roll, with smoked salmon draped over it but with a stripe of cream cheese sprinkled with dill. And you know what? That was pretty good. But it's not all pretty good, even in Indianapolis, the city of pretty good. There's a new Mexican place, which is Indianapolis, downtown Mexican named Nada. <laughs> I, I ate there twice, uh, and I think I've had both the good things on the menu. And I have terrible news to report you from the Ocean Air, Indianapolis's finest seafood restaurant. Stop laughing. The Valrona chocolate mousse that you and I have grown up on that basically has built us into the gamers we are today and into the artists we are today is no more it is not on the dessert menu at the ocean air and as as you know robin we do not use this platform to call for activism of any kind we use this platform to call for sober reflection and if on sober reflection you believe that you should protest the ocean air Go do it.
0: That is a, quite a thing to break to a table full of people who you've given knives to.
1: I agree. The, the The saving grace was that they were torpid from wine. That was the only... Right. It was It was not a good moment. Yes. Yeah,
0: so I, I I did virtually get to look at that menu and, and my jaw dropped in horror. The chocolate, the roll of the chocolate on that menu has been replaced by a flourless chocolate cake. Yeah. The worst chocolate, the worst cake and the worst disappointment if uh, the Valrhona chocolate mousse is no longer available. Yeah. So I'm sure that will be the biggest political issue in Indiana for the, the next year. Right. Uh, well, having vicariously imagined uh, myself at Gen Con retrospectively, I think it's time for us to uh, resume regular order. Uh, so we'll uh, reset with a, a, a beautiful commercial that will make me think of uh, the Valrhona chocolate mousse, and then we'll be back. The Best of Ask the Geln is now available at Drive-Thru RPG. All
1: issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions.
0: Containing stellar gaming material
1: from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find DICE, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory.
0: And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures
1: by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix.
0: And the new Sagebrush and Six-Guns
1: role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish?
0: Uh, Oddly, Google Translate
1: refuses to help on that. That's the best of AskFegeln on DriveThru.
0: Soothe Ken's scratchy throat and my Gen Con missing sorrow by throwing in with such beloved Patreon backers as Benjamin Rawls, Gwendolyn Schmidt, Jacob Ansari, Jamie Twine, and Thomas
1: Edward. The Rattle of Dice, The Thump of Miniatures... The Crunch of Doritos and the Benevolent Gaze of Peter Frampton, coming alive, welcome us once more into the Gaming Hut, and here in the Gaming Hut, beloved Patreon backer Mikey Ham has asked us a question. How would you approach emulating a genre in which death is always threatened, but never actually happens, like a buddy cop movie? Why do we as audiences still tense up while watching Ethan Hunt face death, even though we know he's not going to die? Can this psychological phenomenon be used in our game to make players worry about a death they know can't actually happen per the rules?
0: Narrative immersion. Narrative immersion is what makes us identify with characters who, in the back of our minds, as analyzing structuralists, we go, Well, you know, there's going to be another Ethan Hunt movie, or it would be a giant drag if they killed off the dog in Turner and Hoot. Oh, wait. Oh. Uh, So, sometimes... We get thrown a curveball and, uh, but basically we just connect to characters, even ones that we're watching on uh, movie screens or on television and fear for them because the moment to moment Style of the film uh, draws us in. The character is charismatic. We care about them. It's a, an interesting performer. We relate to them. There's suspenseful music. It's cut well. And so, as a GM, if you are doing your job well, even in a game where literally it's impossible mechanically for your character to die, I think players lose themselves in that. And they, if the character is in some sort of danger, they become involved in it because also death is not the only outcome that you could possibly fear happening. As we know from listening to this show, compelling narrative is about oscillating between hope and fear. And Ken, there's lots of things to uh, fear other than the literal annoying death of a character in the middle of the narrative.
1: Yeah. I mean, you can, you can fear that you'll be just chased out of the dungeon, even in a, in a world where your character is relatively high level you know that you're not going to die or if the game provides an explicit you know bumper pad like 13th age does where it says you can flee and take a campaign loss you fear that even though you may not fear your character being obliterated or a game where you can be resurrected all the time you're you're more fearing the inconvenience of having to splash out the 10,000 gold yeah. or whatever it costs. What
0: people really fear is losing their vorpal sword.
1: Right. Yeah, that's <laughs> the character is expendable but the property uh, property is forever. So the uh, the degree of of narrative immersion and I find this, you know, again if if you're a good GM in the moment you can create that kind of suspense and that that kind of uh, concern. And even if you're a mediocre GM,
0: uh, there's a bunch of reasons why people will continue to follow along. One is even if you're literally playing a game in which your character can't die, of which I cannot think of any in the trad space, you are trained from other games. You know, if you started with D&D even a couple of weeks ago, you know that your character can die at any moment, and you transfer that fear to the current game and so often in fact the problem i think more so is that the players are more likely to be too protective of their characters and too fearful even in an environment that is supposed to be relatively forgiving you're much more likely to have a difficulty with their over engagement with their anxieties for the character than with a sort of structural disengagement
1: yeah the 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 only sort of i think Counter to that argument is that games require you to keep a mechanical awareness of what's happening just so you can, you know, roll the hit or whatever else in a way that, you know, watching a movie does not. So you 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 can only turn off so much of your analytic brain while playing a game because at some level you have to follow the rules and you have to remember what the rules are. And once you're remembering what the rules are, you probably remember, Oh yeah, I can't die. I have too many hit points or I'm too high level or whatever. But the, in the moment of, you know, did I hit, did I not hit is conversely more visceral than the same moment, even in, you know, a really great, uh, mission impossible movie. So you have, You know, on the one hand, a slightly lower level, on the other hand, a slightly higher level. And I feel like, again, presenting the environment as threatening means that you're able to have those, you know, sense of disbelief suspensions that say, oh, well, maybe this could be really bad. And I and I fear it.
0: Right. Any moment of failure is going to read as an emotional down note. Mm -hmm. And some players hate failure too much (laughs) that any setback upsets and annoys them. You don't have to play to that person. They'll be totally engaged. But if you do have someone who is going, well, my character can't die, so none of this is meaningless. I'm going to just sit back and read my comic books. Well, first of all, consider having a different player mix the next time around. But the thing to do is just give them something else to care about. So... If the stakes in a given genre are not the life or death of the characters, as they frequently are not, identify what the stakes are. So the stakes in a buddy cop movie are, A, that the mismatched partners will not achieve harmony. That's the emotional Mm -hmm. one. And then the procedural one is that they will blow the case. And of course, you know that at some point in a buddy cop movie, their no-nonsense lieutenant is going to take them off the case. That is also a given. But there's the fear that once taken off the case, they won't then be able to redeem themselves by identifying, you know, the evil rich guy who's behind the scheme. So identify the threat, identify the stakes, and uh, keep reminding the players of that. So instead of worrying about whether they're going to die or not, they're worrying about whether the gloating bad guy is uh, going to get away with murder.
1: Yeah. And the gloating bad guy is a big arrow in your quiver as a as a game master. Um, The knowledge that you are you know the only people between the necromancer and a wave of death or you're the only people between this cthulhu cult and some appalling uh, thing happening to innocent folks in arkham that's a powerful motivator as well uh the the fear of of failure the fear of letting the setting or the npcs down if you've uh, run a good game and are paying attention to that sort of play that's another big part of it when i alluded to taking the campaign loss in in 13th Age, when my players took it, that was that was a real morale beater for them. They were really bummed. It was, you know, you could see the characters just sort of walking around some you know villa in Mesopotamia kicking the dirt and cursing each other out as you know, wow, how did we let that happen? That kind of thing. And you can play into that and you can establish those stakes and make them important. And really, if the only thing you're in the dungeon for is do I live or do I die? much less do I or don't I get the magic sword. Those seem like low stakes to be playing for anyway, or at least uninteresting ones. There should be a a wider variety of ups and downs available just from the setup of your story, regardless of the psychological effect of roll to 20 versus roll to one.
0: Yeah. I mean, you may be having fun with a a grind in a classic dungeon setting where, you know, the deaths of characters is a possibility, but The more death is a possibility for characters, the more you will find built into a game to make that less of a problem. Mm -hmm. So in, you know, classic F20 resurrection spells, that's not, you know, that's uh, a bump in the road. And the other thing is that in the more narrative a story you're telling, in fact, it's quite often more annoying to the GM to have a character die than it is to the player who's maybe thinking, well, I'd like to play, you know, a burglar next time around, but you as the GM have you know, created this web of plot hooks around them, so it's, it might be a drag for you as well. So the threat of death, the threat of danger, it is a a threat more than a realization. The realization is always a bummer. And so as long as you can sort of keep that in the wind, the uh, now, now, this does become a problem when a rule set is written in such a way that the overly analytic poke you in the eye player goes... Well, I don't have to uh, make my climbing roll to get down this building. I'll just jump because I know I'm only going to take sixty-six damage, and I've got eighty hit points. I'm just going to jump down. Well, then it turns out that there's you know added damage for breaking the fourth wall.
1: Like that. <laughs> yes, it's only six d six from the fall, but sadly, it's twelve d six when you went through the fourth wall on your way down. Exactly,
0: but it it sort of seems to me that this is a a hypothetical problem that if it actually Becomes non hypothetical, uh, I think speaks more to the player's desire to sort of flaunt their disengagement. To repeat, and therefore to sum up, create the stakes, make them care about the stakes. And on the list of interesting stakes, death is maybe five or six or seven. And on that note, my biggest stake concern at this point is that there won't be a commercial to uh, take us through the. Oh, thank goodness, there's a commercial. Delta Green Iconoclast: a campaign of horrors modern and ancient, brings a team of agents to a scene of terrors all
1: too real. Mosul in 2016 held by the self-styled Islamic State in a reign of depraved brutality.
0: From a small base at the Kirkuk airfield, the agents must research the horrors to come and prepare for a harrowing infiltration.
1: ISIL fighters destroy mysterious artifacts. A
0: Delta Green veteran goes rogue. Hidden myths permeate the Battle of Mosul. A demon god beckoned by a bloodthirsty cult. Plus terrifying supplementary material. Rules and guidelines for spying, crime,
1: and backroom deals. New rituals. New tomes. And the dreadful details of a threat to suit all the evils of humanity. Available now in PDF. Or pre-order your glistening hardback slated for October release.
0: The clacking of time gears and the whirring of chronotons tell us that we're once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine. This, of course, is the conveyance that Ken's superiors at Time Incorporated used to send him back into the time stream to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. And this time around, uh, not wanting to burden you too much with the uh, research uh, post-GenCon, I thought I'd give you a sort of a, a free throw, as it were, and ask, which notable figure of the Old West would you save from untimely death, and how would that change the timeline? And I think one of the surprising things is that once you do start doing your research, it turns out that the people
1: you would want to save Mostly didn't get killed. I wonder if that's a coincidence. Yeah, I mean, legendary Marshal Bass Reeves lived a long and happy life. Wyatt Earp, likewise. Most of the good guys survived their gunfights and went on to careers in law enforcement or... The movies are right. Being the good guy makes you shoot better. Yeah, who knew? Also, you know, the guys who have really cool deaths, generally terrible people. Uh, Billy the Kid, classically, you know, gunned down by Pat Garrett. But again, kind of a jerk. Uh, Jesse James, Confederate, bank robber, traitor, bad person. I don't want to save him, even from the coward Robert Ford, even if he is Brad Pitt. While Bill Hickok is maybe a good case because he was a, a good guy and a, and a great gunfighter. But sadly, when I did do the research, because I thought, well, this is a layup. I'll lay up one back. He had glaucoma. And it was, you know, coming on. Uh, he was only, I think, 39, 36 when he died, something like that. But the thing is, if he can be shot in the back of the head by a non-entity like Jack McCall in 1876, you know, what does a Wild Bill Hickok with 30% worse eyesight face? Well, he's going to be killed in three years by some other non-entity, regardless of how many times I show up and say, uh, you might want to, you know, trade that ace out for a Jack or something. Keeping Wild Bill Hickok alive means he moves to Cincinnati with his wife and stays there and does not get into any more hijinks. It becomes boring. And I feel like uh, that's not a good thing for the timeline, except that while Bill Hickok is alive.
0: There's a couple of other prominent figures who live to a medium ripe age and then die of heart attacks, which is CPR through the time stream. Not so much your specialty. Not my vibe. So that gets you Bat Masterson, for example.
1: Yeah. So the figure that I figured out was, don't save Wyatt Earp, because again, he doesn't need me to save him. Save Morgan Earp. Morgan Earp murdered through the window of the Campbell and Hatch Billiard Hall and Tombstone on March 18th, 1882 by members of the Cowboys gang who were aching for revenge after having been pantsed at uh, O.K. Corral. So you can either just move Morgan Earp away from the window or better yet, tip Wyatt off that guys are laying in the alley to ambush his brother. That saves Morgan Earp, and without Morgan Earp being killed, Wyatt never goes on the vendetta ride in which he entirely extra-legally recruits a bunch of Earps and Earp hangers on to hunt down the cowboys and murder them all, and while justifiable morally, meant that he could never again serve as a federal law enforcement officer, because that goes on your record, Robin, did you extrajudicially kill a bunch of guys. Well, yeah, they would yes. prefer if you'd done it judicially. Yes. They would prefer that you railroad them according to the majesty of the law at the time. So with Wyatt Earp's future in law enforcement secure, we can fast forward to the time of Teddy Roosevelt, also a Western figure, close friend of Matt Masterton, friendly acquaintance, at least of Wyatt Earp. And when he became president, he appointed a whole bunch of what were called the white house gunfighters to various legal positions. So, for example, Pat Garrett, the man who shot Billy the Kid, became the Collector of Customs at El Paso. Dodge City Marshal Ben Daniels becomes U.S. Marshal for Arizona. Bat Masterton, the beloved and talented Bat Masterton, Deputy U.S. Marshal for the Southern District of New York. And there's a picture of Bat in his, you know, New York suit and his derby hat, and he just looks ridiculous. But he must have enjoyed it because he also looks prosperous. So what other positions are in teddy roosevelt's gift well in 1908 teddy roosevelt angry at the failure of the treasury department to crack down on crime with the existing secret service creates the bureau of investigation out of loose justice department funds and he puts a fellow named charles finch in charge of it and no one cares but if At the age of 60, there was a man with a spotless career of law enforcement, but a cowboy Teddy style career of getting his hands dirty and doing what needs to be done. Wyatt Earp was around. Then having Wyatt Earp as the first director of the Bureau of Investigation, which becomes the FBI. I think that is, first of all, good. Second of all. Wyatt Earp was a Republican, so no political problem there. Third of all, Wyatt Earp, by and large, not just go along to get along Republican guy, but repeatedly intervened on the behalf of African-Americans and Chinese laundry associations and all kinds of other groups that were being hassled by vigilante gangs like the Cowboys. So he at least is maybe better DNA than, say, J. Edgar Hoover, who... Admittedly, does not come on until Wyatt is probably gone, because at 60, I don't think he becomes director for life or anything. Right.
0: But but even if Earp establishes the culture yeah. of the FBI, that probably establishes a culture where Hoover does not get to be in charge, and certainly does not himself get to establish the culture and do the
1: opposite of all the things you just mentioned. Right. And a and, uh, Wyatt Earp, who establishes sort of a more Texas Rangers- Personal responsibility attitude in the FBI can only be good. And also if, uh, he meets young twerp J. Edgar Hoover and gives him a dressing down that becomes legendary throughout the halls of the FBI, no matter how good a job Hoover does rounding up Reds during the Red Scare, somehow that never turns into permanent directorship. And I feel like running the two of them together in the halls of the FBI would not be a big ask for someone With a time machine,
0: I can just picture people saying, "You know, Edgar, you're uh, you're ambitious, but you're no Wyatt Earp.
1: You're no Wyatt Earp, exactly." And I think that that's a lovely capstone. Uh, Again, the other problem is very few of them affect the time stream in any realistic way. There's sort of a legend that if Billy the Kid had lived, he and Lou Wallace would have brought down the New Mexico ring of corrupt landowners. I feel that any plan that counts on Billy the Kid doing his job is probably not a good plan. So I left that out as well.
0: Right. And the only benefit of saving Pat Garrett, which first of all, a is out of period Mm -hmm. is that you would then get to say that you successfully intervened
1: in a goat dispute. Right. Right. Which again, you know, who doesn't want to intervene in a goat dispute, but that's literally all I do in Iceland now. So,
0: (laughs) well, the, the the history of Iceland is, is full of goat disputes and then they have legal cases about them. And, and uh, so far, it's all still goat disputes, so we don't discuss them on the show. But very important to the, to the goats and the Icelanders.
1: Right. I mean, it's, if, you, if you're a fan of legal sagaing, I've done some yeoman work there.
0: Right. Well, and, and also, I guess, in the Old West, there's actually a lot of legal aspects, too, because, as we've discussed before on the show, a lot of things that the movies turn into mythological morality plays were in fact very complicated business disputes between people with guns yeah
1: or land ownership issues
0: well there's no there's no business dispute like a land ownership dispute that's, that's right how exactly all down
1: to. instead of building a shed on your property you're Grazing sheep on your property, but it's just as bad, quite frankly.
0: So does Morgan Earp uh, wind up working in the Bureau of Investigation as well?
1: Well, I, I feel like Morgan is probably not going to make it. I, I I think it's possible, but I feel like Morgan Earp is probably more likely to have been, you know, one of those uh gets a marshal's job. But if he'd gotten the U.S. marshal's job for, say maryland or northern virginia that he and wyatt could have teamed up in the sort of way that they did uh, back in tombstone
0: well uh, wyatt earp bureau of investigation sounds like a great show that will last for two seasons before being canceled by its streamer without resolving its plot line so hit us up netflix <laughs> and on that note time for us to uh, exit once again and we'll be back next week with an even normaler episode Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors! Atlas Games! Belgrain Press! Ask Figuem. Arc Dream! Dark Tower! And Poor Fantasy Software!
1: Music as always is by James Semple! Audio editing by Rob Borges! Support our Patreon at patreon.com
0: backslash Ken and Robin. Keep this podcast varmint-free by joining such leather-slapping backers as James Tatum, Rich Spanauer, Andy M. Young, Adam Grokjohn, and Andrew Cowie. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash users slash Ken Robin.
1: Check out our latest design. If the players do it, it's not a contrivance. On Twitter he's at Kennethite. And
0: he's at Robin D Laws. See you next time when once again we will talk about stuff.